The first reading is from the second book of Samuel, chapter 11, reading the first 27 verses. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab with his officers and all Israel with him. They ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David rose from his couch and was walking about on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. David sent somebody to inquire about the woman. It was reported this is Bathsheba, daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. So David sent messengers to get her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she was purifying herself after her period. Then she returned to her house. The woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab and the people fared and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the entrance of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, you have just come from a journey. Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah remain in booths. And my Lord Joab and the servants of the Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and be with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do such a thing. Then David said to Uriah, remain here also and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day. On the next day, David invited him to eat and drink in his presence and made him drunk. And in the evening, he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord. But he did not go down to his house. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the highest fighting and then draw back from him so that he may be struck down and die. As Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant warriors. The men of the city came out and fought with Joab and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite was killed as well. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting. He instructed his messenger, 
When you had finished telling the king all the news about the fighting, then if the king an king's anger rises, and if he says to you, why did you go so near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, son of Jerabel? Did not a woman throw an upper millstone on him from the wall? So he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead too. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, the men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant, Uriah the Hittite, is dead also. David said to the messenger, Thus you shall say to Joab, Do not let this matter trouble you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Press your attack on the city and overthrow it and encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that her husband was dead, she made lamentation for him. When the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. Thanks be to God for his word. The second reading is from the second book of Samuel, chapter 12, reading the first nine verses. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord, and the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich men had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he bought, he brought it up, it grew up with him and with his children, it used to eat of his meagre fare and drink from his cup and lie in his bosom, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveller to the rich man, and he was loath to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared that for the guest who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. He said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. He shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus said the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel and I rescued you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your bosom and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah and if that had been too little, I would have added as much more. 
Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Thanks be to God for his word. This morning I have a story for you. Are you sitting comfortably? Good, then I shall begin. My name is Nathaniel, which in Hebrew means gift of God, but you've probably heard of me as just Nathan, as that's what my friends call me. I've spent most of my professional life as an advisor to the Royal Court, which wasn't exactly what I had in mind when I set out on a religious vocation. But sometimes the spirit of the Lord takes us into unexpected places. For many years now, I've had the privilege, if you could call it that, of working alongside his majesty, King David, which as you can imagine, is something of a mixed blessing. What, what can I tell you about the king that you don't already know? Musician, poet, warrior, lover, fighter, deeply religious, almost fanatically so at times, and yet also a consummate politician. Man of the people, man of God, King David is all of these things and much more. The first time I had a proper discussion with him came shortly after one of his more religious moments, which itself came off the back of some intense fighting. David and 30,000 of his warriors had just recaptured the Ark of the Covenant and brought it on a cart um, back into Israel's safekeeping. David had placed it in a tent and started the celebration of its return by sacrificing an ox and a calf. And he then led the celebrations himself, dancing around the tent with this wild abandon, wearing nothing but some fairly skimpy priestly underclothing. I think it's fair to say that he let it all hang out and simply didn't care who saw him, which it turned out was rather unfortunate because one of the people who did see him was Michal, the younger daughter of David's predecessor, King Saul, the first she was of David's wives. I'm not sure it was ever really a love match, David and Michal, more of a political alliance. Do you know, the bride price demanded of David by Saul, her father, had been the rather unusual request for a hundred Philistine foreskins. But David had met that request. He had doubled it, in fact, and so he had bought and married Michal, tying Saul's dynasty to his own. All had seemed good for a time, but then when they had thought David had been lost in battle, Michal was handed over to a different husband, only to be returned to David after he became king. 
To say that Micah was unimpressed to see David flaunting his religious fervour with gay abandon would be the understatement of the year. Any positive feeling she may have had for him turns to disgust towards him at that moment, and she despised him from that day forwards. But private disgust in a marriage is one thing, public criticism is another. When she tore strips off him publicly as he returns to the palace after his dancing escapades, the king pronounced a curse on her in the name of the Lord declaring that she would never bear a child. And indeed, Michal never did, until the day she died. And so King Saul's line ended there. And here we begin to see something of the complexity of King David. He so often seems to think he's the kind of leader who can do no wrong that the end always justifies the means when it applies to him and his decision-making. Can you imagine such a leader? He believed that the Lord was on his side, come what may, and that the Lord will do whatever David wants the Lord to do. And there is no doubt that David is the Lord's favourite from his early years as a musician playing chords that pleased the Lord, everyone has always been able to see that he has the anointing of the Spirit of God to inspire devotion, to strike fear and terror, to build up God's people, to see further than anyone else could see as to what it is that the Lord wants. Time and time again, the Lord has fought with David, and David has fought with the Lord. But just, just between us, I can't help but wonder if sometimes David rather tries the Lord's patience. I mean, this business of cursing Michal, surely a leader has to learn to take criticism from those close to him. What if one day the king's actions and the Lord's will do not align? Who will ever have the courage to speak to him if even those in the king's own family are cursed for daring to speak out? Well, all of this was in the background to my first proper meeting with David. The Ark of the Covenant was in its tent and David went back to his Cedarwood Palace. And the religious fervour came on him once again, and he started to feel guilt about the contrast between his own comfortable home and the mere tent where the Lord was living. Clearly, David was contemplating building a new temple, a permanent house for the Lord in Jerusalem, his new capital city. My initial reaction was to encourage his idea. After all, surely the role of a prophet is to strengthen the place of the Lord in the land, and a new temple would draw worshippers from far and wide. But then that night I had a dream, and I know what you're thinking, we've all had dreams, and they're not the most reliable way of taking decisions. 
But then again, have you ever had one of those dreams where you wake up with an unshakable conviction that something has settled within you whilst you slept? Well, it was like I heard the Lord speaking. And the thing is, what I heard was that God does not want a temple, at least not yet. A tent, the Lord said, a tent is fine for now. Because the Lord wants to be free to move with his people, to accompany them on journeys, to go with them into battles. But there was more. The Lord doesn't want David to settle down either. It's not David's calling to build fine palaces and temples. He's got more traveling, more fighting to do. So with fear at what would happen and remembering the cursing of Michal, I went to the king the next day and I told him what I had sensed from the Lord. I said that the house David would build for God would not be a house of wood and stone, but a dynasty, a house of David. And the Lord's words spoken through me touched the king's heart. And he went out and then into the tent to speak with the Lord face to face to confirm the covenant between himself and his God that the king would continue to fight for the Lord and that in return his house would be established in the land for countless generations. This was the beginning of the great house of David. And so David left his palace and went back to war, subduing the Philistines defeating the Moabites, killing kings, and hamstringing their chariot horses by their thousands. With terror and brilliance, he established Israel. He killed 18,000 Edomites in one battle. He reigned over all Israel and administered justice and equity to all his people. But then one year, David just decided not to go into battle. He stayed at home in his palace and sent his commander Joab to ravage the Ammonites in his stead. And I don't know what came over him, but his enthusiasm for the battle, for the task that he had been anointed to do, had gone away that year. In its place was a listlessness, an acidity, a longing for something different. And this is how the whole sorry affair with the wife of Uriah the Hittite began. You know the story, so I'm not going to give it words again here, but I will say that it felt as if David was working his way down some list of forbidden commandments given to Moses, systematically disobeying each one in turn, firstly desiring his neighbour's wife then committing an adulterous rape upon her, then bearing false witness against that neighbour, and then finally murdering his neighbour in cold blood so that he could steal Uriah's wife for himself. And you know, it wasn't just David that year. It was like the infection of deceit at the top affected everybody else in the government as well. With Joab, the commander of the army playing his own politics of deception against the king to hide his own terrible decisions in the face of the enemy. 
And there was I, a prophet of the Lord, witness to the failures of my king. What are we to do when those we have over us to lead us demonstrate themselves incompetent to the task? What are we to do when the powerful lose their way? What are we to do when those who should be acting for the good of the nation start placing their own desires and priorities ahead of their calling? How are we to call those powers to account when to speak out of turn could be catastrophic? Remember Michal, I'd already challenged David once. Could I get away with doing it again? But could I keep silent? Could I stand by and watch as one person ruins not only their own life, but also the hopes and dreams of a whole nation? How could I get through to this king? How could I break through his sense of living a charmed life, of being entitled to his position, accountable to neither God nor man? And then I remembered that some battles are won not by swords or chariots, but by words and the truth. And so I started to dream my story of a poor man and his pet lamb. And I summoned my courage and I went to the king to hold up before him my mirror of words. To ensnare him with the truth. His ability to judge the affairs of others with equity became the mechanism for him judging his own actions. And David, because he is David and capable of both great sin and great grace, sometimes both at the same time, did not repeat on me the curse of Michal. He allowed me to continue. And so I cursed him in the name of the Lord. I said to him, thus says the Lord, now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house. For you have despised me and taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. I went on. Thus says the Lord, I will raise up trouble against you from within your own house, and I will take your wives from before your eyes and give them to your neighbour, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this very sum, for you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before Israel, before the sun. Thus says the Lord. And I saw the light go out in David's eyes as this mighty, holy man of valour and war, this giant killing giant of a man, was himself slain in his soul by the small, smooth stones of my words of truth. He confessed his sin to me as if I was a priest not a prophet, 
And I thought this was the end of the matter. But then the spirit of the Lord came upon me again. And I said to the king, thus says the Lord. Now the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child that is born to you shall die. There has to be some balance, you see. Even for a king like David, there are no cost-free transgressions. Sin always extracts its terrible cost on humans' lives. Did God kill David's child? I don't know. I hope not. But David's child died, never even named. And the king now has to live with that guilt and pain for the rest of his life. Did you know he nearly starved himself to death as that child lay dying? But then once it was gone, he went to the temple to worship. Oh, they have more children, David and Bathsheba. They even named one of them after me. But that, that lost little one, another life added to the tally of David's harvest of humans, that lost little one remained in my soul. As the weak and the children and the women continue to suffer for the sins committed by powerful men. How is it that David commits the sins, and yet the victims of his abuse, his child, other children, innocent women, these are those who bear the punishment for his wrongdoing? Is this the way the Lord works? I would love to say no, but somehow I feel like I'm trapped inside a story that says yes. It feels as if I'm trapped in a world where another hand has written these rules of reward and punishment and I can't escape because it's a story that keeps repeating itself down the generations as if the great King David's family is itself now destined for destruction and defeat because of his great failures and destructive actions. I mean, do you know that his daughter Tamar was raped by her brother, Amnon. Another story of another woman destined to carry the shame for the sins of her father and her brother. Why do I live in a world where women and children are punished for the sins of the kings and the princes, their fathers and their brothers? If only there was some way that this story could be rewritten with the Lord not as the divine equivalent to David, warring and fighting and punishing and rewarding. What if we could find a way to tell this story where the Lord suffers with the suffering, where the Lord dies alongside the innocent child taken before their time, where the Lord weeps with those who find life unbearable? What if this story could become part of a bigger story, enfolding the king's life with all its failures and glories into a wider narrative? What if the house of David were not destined to destruction, 
but to the building of a new and better house for the Lord. What if God is still faithful to the covenants of Noah, Moses, Abraham and David? What if there were no need to keep offering the lamb of sacrifice on the altar of forgiveness? I wonder if I'm dreaming again. Or maybe I'm catching a glimpse of a vision of a different future. My story to the king exposed his sin. And I wonder if other stories can do similar. As the world as we know it becomes the world as we long for it to be. Well, I offer my story to you this morning and I hope my words open for you a path to a future of hope where the Lord is part of your story too. Thank you, Simon. Let's take a few moments to think and reflect in quietness. But while we do that, can I invite the panelists to come and join me here and Ian online as we follow a practice we developed during lockdown of bringing more voices to respond to what we've heard. Liz, I'll let you go first. Have you got any thoughts or responses to what you've heard? <clears throat> this is one of those occasions where um, I feel there isn't an awful lot that needs to be said after the, the story, to be honest. I mean, I guess the only thing I would say is when I was jotting down notes, as I tend to, to try and come up with something that, that might be worthwhile, um, Obviously, this is a deeply disturbing story, um, especially uh, as a woman and as a wife. And, you know, so it's, I think you have to hold that. And, and I think that, that Simon's story uh, and at, at the end um, leaves us with those questions about where God is in, in this kind of story. Um, I think that the thing that I probably I take away myself is is the idea of stories and the power of words again and I think I've said this before when I was on a panel I think the question I was left with was how how do I speak out how do I um where I see that there is wrong how do I be that person that says the right thing um and says something that makes a difference um and I think I was thinking probably because um, our, the church trip to um, Israel-Palestine is coming up, um, the power of the stories of things that we see there and the power of um, words when we come back is, is really important to, to show perhaps how things really are rather than the way people, the other stories that people know. So I think that's probably on my mind most is the the big questions about how do you find God in here, but then also how, how do we then respond? Thank you, Liz. Ian, if I may, I'll come to you. I'll let Dermot uh, have some more moments to think. <laughs> no, thank you. Yeah, I really um, agree with Liz. I think, you know, 
this is such a, an incredible story. And the story within the story is, for me, the thing that, you know, hits me. It's the power of the narrative that hits David, those small stones that uh, ironically, you know, uh, of truth that came to him and, and broke him. And yeah, the power of story and the power of narratives, which is really something I'm very interested in. I'm, you know, trying to sort of follow that pathway in my own life. And what Liz is about, in a sense, having, um, in a way to be the people who can, you know, offer story, offer something that speaks into situations today, which are equally as complex. Uh, I mean, I, you know, I, I, I thought I really like the way Simon, um, you know, put put this whole thing forward into this compelling narrative, the way he did it, which was like a sort of news reporter, you know, reflecting on Boris Johnson's, dare I say it, you know, sort of behaviour. But, you know, it brought it really down to, you know, such a powerful thing. And, and, and the things that, that also struck me was that my own response you know, when David, I, I imagine David listening to that story and, and his indignation and then realising I myself, you know, um, have so often been in that position when suddenly my indignation has been turned around on myself as I've realised that my blindness has been punctured, you know, um, by, to, to reveal my, my, you know, that I'm no different to this person, you know, that, and, and, and I'm the, you know, and, and, and I have to ask questions of myself. I think maybe the other thing that I'm, I'm really sort of conscious of is that, that very often we, we try to have answers. And I think, as Liz has said, you know, I think what comes out of this whole narrative is in a sense that, you know, answers are quite hard to come by. And I think, you know, we have to need, we, we need a lot of humility um, as, as we face the complexities of the world, you know. And, uh, and I think the Bible is amazing because it's not a book full of, you know, we suppose, you know, like good people, <laughs> they, they are real people and, and we are, you know, and, and, and so I just think, you know, we can take these uncomfortable stories and I think it's up to, you know, I think we can work with them and it's often something that you can't just, there's no pat answers, you know, I, I did, and, you know, I think uh, there's, there's a guy, I don't know, and people have heard of um, a, a, a German um, philosopher called Rilke, and for me, his words were, he wrote to a very famous quote from him that, you know, we need to live with the questions. And, and in a sense, living with questions um, of, of the difficulties of life or of our own struggles can often produce something of a longer sort of harvest, I would say. So, yeah, just a, that's just sort of some thoughts. Thank you, Ian. Dermot? Yep. Um, as I was listening to uh, the scriptures being read, uh, outlining the story of uh, David and Bathsheba and Nathan's challenge to him, it made me think about uh, good people committing murderous acts in order to save face and, uh, and David doing his best to get Uriah killed, uh, but after having slept with Bathsheba so that you know, it, it, it just it, these murderous acts coming out of a good person. And it made me think too of um, uh, the New Testament tells us after the raising of Lazarus that people began to believe in Jesus because of Lazarus's story. It was just telling them what happened to him. And one of the most frightening verses in scripture that I think is, is that the chief priests plotted to kill him. 
And again, it's this idea of religious people with their murderous acts in, in, in order to, to save face or to save status. And um, in thinking of Nathan's dealing with David in this situation, um, I was smiling in that Nathan is uh, thought of as a prophet in scripture, uh, but actually I think he functions as a therapist in that he holds up the truth and enables his client, in this case David, to perhaps get a more honest appraisal of the truth and see his own um, role in creating the narrative that he has created. And, uh, and that can be a liberating and freeing thing. And one of the things that encourages me about this complex and uh, uncomfortable story, not based on the God character as well within it, um, one of the things that comforts me is that David ultimately was able to own his own role, his own sin, and his own uh, uh, murderous actions. Every one of us has murderous thoughts and murderous actions. Every one of us is capable of great good and great evil. And if we can own that, and uh, then that, I think that allows us potentially to have more healthy lives, more healthy engagement with the truth, and uh, a more humbler uh, existence in terms of our living. And I'm conscious too that out of this whole sorry, painful mess, we have some of the most beautiful scripture in, in, in Psalm 51. Uh, and again, David being able to own his wrongdoing. And uh, one of the things that always challenges me about Psalm 51 is David doesn't say, I sinned against Uriah or I sinned against Bathsheba. He says, against you, Lord, have I sinned, that all sin is ultimately a sin against God. And um, so, yeah, complex and untidy story. But David was able to own his own stuff. And that, that encourages me. Thank you, Dermot. I also struggled to um, pick out specific points from within the narrative sermon that Simon had prepared. And I think it's quite challenging to have a sermon like that because I think it makes us consider the actions and the words we're hearing in a different way. But two things in particular I noted that stood out to me, the fear and the concern and the difficulty of giving advice to those who are confident and self-assured in their own rightness and power and authority and where that might lead in the current scenarios and the current circumstances I will leave to the listeners thoughts but also towards the end there that society has a nasty nasty habit of punishing the victims by shame and stigma for actions and events they had no control over. And again, that challenge of how do we draw alongside those who have suffered and bring support and remove that sense of judgment on them. But thank you, panel, unless you've got anything more you'd like to bring, Ian, Liz, no? And we come now to our time of intercessory prayers. Ian, 
I uh, ask you to turn on your video. Yeah. Um, and you, you see me? Can you hear me? <laughs> Hello. Let us pray. God of love, we thank you that you always take the initiative in calling us to come to you. In the words of the hymn that we've just sung, we come just as we are, knowing that your love, that you love us just as we are, with an everlasting and unconditional love. Help us therefore to be present to you now, to be still and to know that you are God. Let us take a few moments to simply be still, to breathe slowly, to rest in your loving presence. As we sit in stillness, we can reflect on the mysteries of your love for us revealed in Psalm 139. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, know, you Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for the darkness is as light to you. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Loving God, we thank you for the words of that psalm attributed to King David. We've been hearing in today's sermon about David, the human being, a person after your own heart. But surely he was also a person after our own divided hearts as well. In the words of Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the great Russian writer and philosopher, the line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart and through all human hearts. This line shifts inside us, it oscillates with the years, and even within hearts overwhelmed by evil, one small bridgehead of good is retained. Gracious God, we come acknowledging that this is true of ourselves as we reflect on our lives. We confess that we have fallen short. We have not loved you, nor our neighbours. We have not loved ourselves, our bodies and minds in healthy ways. We have wronged others. We have not taken care of this beautiful world. We have been complicit in the unjust structures that enslave others and are destroying the planet. Forgive us, loving God. Restore us by your grace to follow your ways of peace and justice.
We thank you, faithful God, that as we heard the sermon, that as we heard in the sermon, you offer us a path to future hope, where you are part of each of our stories. You offer a different way of telling the human story, where you suffer with the suffering. Healing God, we thank you that Solzhenitsyn was able to write those words as someone who, despite enduring terrible suffering as a dissident in Soviet gulags, nevertheless experienced your presence there and was able to write those compassionate words. Forgiving God, may we be able to have compassion on, our, on ourselves and on others as we live in these troubled times. Help us to forgive those who have wronged us and free us from the anger and bitterness that we often hold on to. Listening God, we cry out to you for our world in this time of multiple crises. War, famine, floods, droughts, pandemics, social breakdown, poverty, inequality and injustice, persecution and oppression. Over all of these hang the spectres of nuclear conflict and climate catastrophe. God of hope, help each of us to be peacemakers in our relationships and communities as we live as disciples of the Prince of Peace. Help us to seek first your kingdom of peace and justice and fill us with joy in your Holy Spirit. We pray even now for an end to the conflict in the Ukraine, for a de-escalation of the drive to ever increasing violence and destruction. We pray for the peoples of Ukraine and Russia we're all victims of the conflict. Please stay the hand of President Putin and his regime and grant the leaders of the United States and the EU wisdom in their dealings with Russia. We pray for President Zelensky of Ukraine and his government. We pray for the rising tension between China and Taiwan that could soon escalate to an invasion by China, which in turn could escalate to conflict with the United States. Have mercy, Lord God. We pray for countries and regions suffering from the effects of the climate emergency. For East Africa, where a mixture of drought, floods and famine have brought 27 million people close to extreme hunger. Have mercy, Lord God. For Pakistan, recovering from the devastation of floods that have decimated communities and agriculture on a massive scale. Have mercy, Lord God. We pray for the many continuing conflicts around the world that don't get reported in our mainstream media, for wars in the Sahel in North Africa, in Ethiopia, in Yemen, in Myanmar, in South to South Sudan, for the continued occupation of Palestinian territories by Israeli settlements. We pray for Brazil, where the second round of the presidential election takes place soon. We pray for a peaceful outcome to the election and that the result will not be contested. We pray for our own nation as we experience political instability and as we face a serious economic crisis with many forced into poverty and hunger. We pray for good government, for a coming together by political rivals to solve the deep-seated problems that lie beneath the crisis. We pray for those who are deeply fearful of how they and their families will keep warm and have enough to eat in the coming month, winter months. And for those who, don't, who won't be able to afford higher mortgages or rents. 
We pray for the election of a new leader of the Conservative Party over the next few days. May they seek peace and justice and the good of the country over their own interests. Finally, we pray for our church community. We thank you for each other, for Simon and Dawn and all involved in leadership roles. Thank you, Lord, for the great opportunities we have here in Bloomsbury to provoke faith. We thank you for our links with the churches in Westminster and our partnership with London citizens and for our involvement in Bloomsbury Festival that we've been hearing about from Dawn. We pray for our church AGM next Sunday and for the weekly groups that meet in the church or via Zoom. Finally, we pray to all, for all in our church who are ill or struggling with life. Help each of us to grow in love as servants of each other and as we follow your, you, servant God. We ask all this in the name of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen. And so, as we go out from this place, may Christ teach us through his words. May Christ forgive us in our transgressions. May Christ shield us in our frailties. And may Christ guide us through the inspiration of his spirit. Amen. <laughs>